Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for May 5th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. With us for the full hour is University of British Columbia Professor of Forest Ecology, Dr. Suzanne Simard, who is a pioneer on the frontier of plant communication and intelligence. Her decades of in-the-field experimental research have revolutionized our scientific understanding of forests, elucidating how trees have evolved, how they perceive one another, learn and adapt their behaviors, recognize neighbors, and remember the past, how they have agency about the future, elicit warnings and mount defenses, compete and cooperate with one another with sophistication, and at the center of it all, the mother trees, the mysterious, powerful forces that connect and sustain the others that surround them. Suzanne Simard's book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, was just published by Knopf on May 4th, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Suzanne Simard. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Your book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, was just published by Knopf. It is both a memoir and a chronicle of your scientific work discovering the mycorrhizal interconnections underlying forests You come from a family with generations earning income from logging in British Columbia. Let's begin with that legacy. Yes, on my father's side, well, both sides of my family were loggers, but I think the biggest influence was on my father's side. And so I'll talk about that. The Samar family came from France and then emigrated to Canada in in Quebec and lived there for a while and then then moved across Canada because it was so hard to make a living logging in the Quebecois forests. Actually, they were heading for California, which is really kind of funny because uh, they thought they would go to California and they traveled by train across Canada and they arrived and the cattle car or the car they were in, the doors opened up and the bright sunshine came streaming in after days and days and weeks and weeks on these dark train cars. This would be back in the early 1900s. And in came the streaming light and they said, yes, we're in California. And they jumped out into snow up to their noses. (laughs) And it was actually the interior rainforest of British Columbia near Enderby. And they they stayed (laughs) and settled and became horse loggers in that area at a a lake called Mabel Lake. And yeah, so that's how I grew up. My great grandfather was a horse logger and my grandfather and all my great uncles. And then my dad and my uncles worked for them and became loggers themselves. And then yeah, so eventually I came along as a forester. So that's kind of the history. Yeah. And, and you spent your vacations with either your mother's family or your father's family. And your story of fascination with soil kind of had its err moment when your grandfather's dog, Jiggs, fell into the outhouse. And that's where you got initiated into soil complexity, which you share with our listeners that event. Yeah, yes. I mean, so we spent all of our summers on Mabel Lake in a logger's houseboat that my grandfather had built. He built all of his own equipment, by the way, including his own water wheel that generated electricity. He built his own flumes. He built all the outhouses. (laughs) He built all the boats. Anyway, so we were in our annual spending the summer on a little bay called Cottonwood Bay in Grandpa's logger's houseboat. I was a little kid then, like about six years old. And my great uncle Wilfred Simard had his houseboat was right nearby. And we were all sharing the same outhouse. And then one morning, we could hear this yelping. And we all knew it was Jiggs. Jiggs was a curious dog. And he was always getting into trouble. And so everybody ran up to the outhouse to Jiggs's cries. And and there he was at the bottom of the outhouse swimming around in all the poop. (laughs) And uh, we were all like, just like, oh, my God. And it was hilarious as well. But my grandpa and Uncle Wilfred and my Uncle Jack was there, my dad, and they got all the 
the, the shovels and picks and started digging and I was just absolutely fascinated. I was just a, born as a, a, a dirt eater and a worm eater. So it was a natural thing for me to love the whole scene. Eventually, as I was watching the roots and the worms and the bugs and eventually Jiggs was rescued from the outhouse covered with toilet paper and poop and all that. <laughs> took him down to the lake and threw him in the lake. And yeah, so that was my introduction to deep soil layers. The shallow soil layers, I already knew about them because I was always eating dirt and worms and stuff from the very beginning. So, <laughs> Well, from such beginnings comes a tremendously important <laughs> career in science, um, ultimately leading to your book, Finding the Mother Tree. Well, okay, let's fast forward to your college days, and you are a 20-year-old forestry student, and you got your first job with a logging company in the Lillooet Mountain Range in Western Canada. So what was your job, and how did it affect the scientists you became? So as I mentioned, I grew up in these rainforests where they horse logged, which was selective logging, where my grandpa would take out one tree, you know, a white pine, or take a cedar pole, or whatever they needed. And so the impact was so tiny. And when I started with this big forest company, that was the beginning, really, of industrial logging in Western Canada, or at least it was really getting mechanized and taking off. So until the 50s and 60s, it was mostly this selective logging, where you just took the odd tree here and there, what was needed. And then clear cutting came along and big trucks and chainsaws and it became more and more mechanized. But when I started, there were yarders and skidders and chainsaws and the clear cuts where I worked, they were about 20 to 30 hectares in size, which was huge compared to what I'd grown up seeing. And the whole process of forestry had completely shifted from this sort of regenerative forestry to more this exploitive forestry and where they would clear all of the trees, the big ones, the little ones, everything would be gone. And then my job, actually, I had many jobs when I started there, including laying out wood is what we called it, laying out roads and clear cuts. And then but my real job, even after doing that was to is a silviculturalist, which is the job of growing trees. And so I would go back in after the clear cutting and make prescriptions about what to plant for the company and then follow the planters around and make sure everything was done right. And basically, I learned that modern forestry, which was creating plantations that were always just one species. And then eventually, by the mid-1980s, a little later, by then I was in my mid-20s, the forestry, they started spraying all the plants other than the trees so that all of the resources, in theory, would go into these trees, these plantations of single species to make them grow faster. And so forestry evolved, basically reshaped these forests from these old, complex, beautiful places to these plantations. Reading your book, Finding the Mother Tree, you had a problem because your job was to evaluate how well these new plantings were doing. Well, how well were they doing? Eventually, I, I left that company. The trees, there was a lot of mortality, but I didn't really understand that much about it. I mean, I thought, oh, it's because we're planting wrong or and it is so different. Maybe we shouldn't be planting the species. We should be mixing species. And But eventually I became actually a researcher for the government. And my job then was to learn how to better grow plantations. And I started observing then and like really observing and taking data. And that was my job to do that. And I started noticing that not just a few trees were dying, a lot of trees were dying, especially when we brushed out or weeded out the other trees, especially like the broadleaf trees like birch and aspen and cottonwood in my neck of the woods. And the trees were becoming diseased. They got infected by these root diseases. I, I eventually learned that it was because these birch trees were really good for the conifers. Like, yes, they competed for light a little bit, but they also protected those trees against infections by these other pathogens. I'm going to fast forward a little bit while we're on this topic in that this went on for, it's still happening. We're still doing this kind of thing. And I did a study about 10 years ago where I evaluated the mortality of these monocultures that we were planting. And we're losing so many trees because of the cultivation practices that we've been doing, which is planting a single species, trying to get rid of the other species, simplifying these plantations. And it just makes them attractive for 
insects and diseases. And as climate changes, it's getting worse and worse because these forests, not only are they simple, but they're under stress. And that's perfect for infection by pathogens and insects. The paradigm under which these plantations were happening after the clear cuts was that they had what they called up in Canada a free-to-grow concept, meaning get rid of everything except the commercial plantings that you want for lumber production primarily. In California, we called it conifer release, and the companies were applying in the late 1970s and the early 80s aerial applications of phenoxy herbicides such as 2,4-D and 245 In other words, Agent Orange that was used to defoliate in Vietnam. And it really was a a competition war mentality. It's like a war on anything except what will produce money. And in Mendocino County in the 1980s, we did a citizens organizing initiative to make it illegal to aerially apply these phenoxy herbicides. It was still okay to hand apply on the ground. We succeeded. It it passed overwhelmingly. And some corporations sued. We went all the way to the California Supreme Court and won in the Supreme Court for the right to locally control that sort of thing. And within a couple of weeks, The speaker, Mr. Brown, on behalf of the Farm Bureau, if I recall correctly, because this was the early 1980s, introduced and passed a law making it illegal for local restrictions to be more restrictive than the state restrictions. So much for democracy. Fortunately, they did stop the aerial application And you've had your own personal experience because some of the experiments that you did required you to hand apply these herbicides, Roundup in particular. Was that your undergraduate experiment or your master's experiment? I've lost track. But anyway, do tell our listeners about that because one of the important things in your book is how science is done in forests and It was a learning process for you, and it was a learning process for your readers as well. So share that process with us. Thank you for relating that history for Northern California. We have a similar, in Canada, a similar history. And so I'm going to weave that together with answering your question. In the mid-1980s, so I was in my mid-20s, In Canada, our regulations for forestry were quite weak. The industry was growing. There was more logging. Of course, there was more demand from the forest. All of our forests are managed provincially, so that would be like a state forest for you. So developing our own laws. And in the mid-1980s, there was a realization because there hadn't been like a really regulated planting program or really looking after the forest very well at all. And realizing that there was this huge area called non-satisfactorily restocked, which means that there weren't a lot of trees growing back. They looked to the untrained eye like big brush fields. So you take a beautiful old growth forest and it becomes like a scrub field with very few trees. And so they decided that they were going to get rid of this so-called NSR land. You know, if you were an observant forester and you crawled around in that bush, you would find that there were lots of naturally regenerating trees. But they wanted it all to go faster so that, of course, eventually they could cut down the forest faster again in the future. And so they looked at what was happening in the U.S., actually, with you in Northern California and Oregon and Washington. And at the time, there was a lot of herbicide spraying. And it was really this agricultural model of forestry. And our government looked to the American government to to try to figure out what to do with our NSR land and got onto this idea that got to get rid of the competition, which are all these native plants. And they enacted what's called the Free to Grow Act, which you mentioned. So the Free to Grow Act, yes, it, it required that our trees, commercially coniferous trees, which are basically the ones that we want to log again, the Douglas fir and pine and spruce in our neck of the woods, that they needed to be free of competition from these native plants. And so to do that, we looked to the U.S. and said, oh, they're spraying them with all these herbicides. We'll do the same thing. And so that migrated into the mindset of of us as well. Not that I'm blaming the Americans. We're licensed to our own mistakes up here, too. But that was kind of the original thinking of it. 
And that triggered, and they made a law called in the Forest Act that said you have to have your stands free to grow. That means that they had to be taller than any of the native plants around it. And so the automatic, cheapest way to get rid of those native plants was aerial spraying. And so they started aerial spraying up in Canada too, using 2,4-D. I, I don't know if there was ever Agent Orange that made it up to us. I don't think that they actually combined 2,4-D and 2,5-4-5-T. Maybe they did on the coast, but mostly it was Roundup which is still being used today. And there were huge protests as well in southern British Columbia. People didn't want aerial spraying in their, you know, over their forests. But there still is this aerial spraying going on in the northern half of our province, just like it was back when you were describing in the 70s and 80s in California. And so it has not stopped. We still have these laws in place where we have to have our stands free to grow free of these competing plants, which are just the native plants, right? The early successional plants that help the land heal. But we are kind of in that same mode as you go further north where there's fewer and fewer people there is more there is more of these broadcast helicopter spraying still going on killing the aspens killing the birches to make way for these conifers and yet as i studied this more and more i i found in my research that most of this spraying and cutting of these plants makes no difference. In fact, it makes it worse for the trees, right? Because we didn't know what we were doing. It was just more of this visual, we've got to clean the forest. But in fact, it wasn't helping the trees grow faster. In fact, it was making them sicker and we were losing trees. I would argue that's still the case today. That was an excellent entree into the brilliance of your work, Suzanne Simard, because you began to question this whole system. And using the experimental method, you were able to deduce that instead of competition, there was cooperation among the different native plants and the species that were being planted for commercial purposes. Share with our listeners how you began to investigate those possibilities. Yeah, that's a great question. By the time I was 29, 30, I got a job with the Ministry of Forests, the government, and my job was to learn how to grow these plantations. And one of the first things that they wanted me to do was to look at the effect of herbicide spraying on the growth rates of these plantations. And so I developed this big, broad experiment that tested it in very many forests. And the more I looked, the more I realized that Either it wasn't helping the trees or it was making it worse, as I mentioned earlier. And so I realized that we were looking at the forest in a very narrow-minded way, that there was it was way more sophisticated than just competition. These trees have sophisticated ways of interacting with each other and with the other plants, that there's actually many, many ways that they have relationships with each other. Just like as people, we have many relationships with each other, many ways that we communicate and look after each other and, and even compete with each other. So I started in my PhD, I went back to do my PhD, which I was fortunate in that the government actually sponsored me to go and do this. And I landed on trying to expand our understanding of how trees and plants relate to each other. We called them interactions back then. Most people still call them, scientists still call them that, these interactions. And I, I realized at the time, I was really trying to figure out what was going on below ground, because I knew the trees were getting infected by these root diseases as we brushed out the broadleaf trees like birch. We were setting the soil up for these infections. And so I wanted to understand the pathogens, but I also wanted to know what was going on with the roots of the trees, the planted trees. And I learned about mycorrhizas. And mycorrhizas are these other kind groups of fungi, not pathogens, but they're mutualistic fungi that actually they form a symbiosis with the tree where the fungus grows through the soil and picks up nutrients and water and delivers it to the tree in exchange for photosynthate. And all of the trees all over the world have these obligate symbioses. They all need to associate with fungi in order to survive and produce cones and seeds and, and for their fitness. And so I wanted to know what these fungi, were, these mycorrhizal fungi were doing. And at the time there was, or about 10 years prior to my start of my PhD, there was a study done in the United Kingdom by David Reed and his students where they were actually mycologists. I was a forester. And as mycologists, they were doing these lab studies where they would inoculate pine seedlings with mycorrhizal fungi 
and in the lab, in these little boxes, these root boxes that had clear plastic around them, and they could see the fungi actually growing and then connecting, if there were more than one seedling in the pot, connecting with their neighboring seedlings. And then David was, he was ingenious. He labeled one of those seedlings with carbon-14 and was able to determine that this carbon actually moved from one pine seedling into another one right there in the lab. And so then when I started my PhD, I thought, wow, I wonder if this is part of the thing, part of the puzzle. And I wanted to know if these networks existed in my forest and if they played a role in inhibiting the spread of these pathogens. That's what I wanted to find out. I focused my work on these mycorrhizal networks. And indeed, I found that they existed there throughout our forest. They link our trees together, including trees of different species. And the birch that was being so heavily weeded and attacked by the spray machines were actually sharing carbon with the Douglas firs. And this was like mind-blowing because, of course, the government who was regulating the spraying of our plantations viewed the birches only as competitors. And here I was showing that actually the birch were giving fir carbon and the more the birch shaded the douglas fir the more carbon it gave to the douglas fir and this like completely turned it all upside down so now suddenly it's birch isn't just this evil competitor it's actually in collaboration with douglas fir that they're in this sort of this dance of sharing carbon below ground all the while competing above ground so they're in this very sophisticated relationship that wasn't just narrow and one-sided it was very complex and I concluded came to the conclusion and have verified this over the many years that this mixture of trees this diversity in the forest was really really important at keeping all of those plants healthy and keeping the the pathogens in balance with the ecosystem and that when you start taking these species without understanding these sophisticated relationships like taking out the birches you upset that balance and that's when the pathogens and the insects and the drought set in and then puts the plantations at huge risk especially because they're already at risk since they've been planted as monocultures to start we are speaking with Professor Suzanne Simard forestry professor at the University of British Columbia Her book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, has just been published, and it's a memoir describing how she has come to discover the science behind the collaborative nature of the forest. Suzanne, would you explain what you have discovered in terms of the mechanisms of how carbon and other nutrients goes between trees, different trees of the same species and different trees of different species. Explain about this source sink gradient. Yeah, so the source sink gradient is really, you can think of it like a big diffusion gradient where things go from high concentration to low concentration. And this theory actually was developed by David Reed when he did his study back in the UK with the little pine seedlings back in the early 1980s. And the idea being that one tree will be photosynthesizing at very high rates, have high concentrations of photosynthate in their needles, and this sugar then gets loaded into the phloem, which is that, the phloem is that ring of, they're like little sieve tubes around that that are like a pipeline from, that send sugars from the leaves down into the roots of the plants. And so you can have a tree, like a birch tree, that photosynthesizes at a very high rate, also has a lot of nitrogen in its leaves, and it loads that sugar into its phloem travels down to the roots and then if there are neighboring plants nearby that are linked into the network of the of the paper birch that have lower concentrations of photosynthate lower concentrations of nitrogen and other nutrients then that sugar follows that concentration gradient from the roots of that we call them donor trees or the the big birch tree into the mycorrhizal network and there's a whole bunch of biochemical transformations that go along that pathway that I won't explain here but needless to say is that it follows this sort of sourcing this high concentration with water is involved where water rushes in to create a pressure gradient to equalize osmotic potential across the network and then that carbon or that sugar moves through the network into the sink plant which is needing photo 
photosynthate needing that nitrogen. It's got demands for it, and it follows right into the sink plant. And we found that the sugars and nitrogen amino acids would shoot right into the shoots <laughs> or be transmitted right into the shoots of those sink plants. So that's basically how that works. And it, and I have to say that it's it's just a theory. It's a model of how we think things work. It's probably more sophisticated than that in that the mycorrhizal network itself is comprised of hundreds of fungal species, at least in my neck of the, in my forest, hundreds of fungal species. And they are all part of this network and they're complex networks. It's not just like one telephone line going from one plant to another, although you can think of it that way. There are many telephone lines and many Many branches in the network that link to not just one plant but all of the plants and so you can imagine that this just use your imagination to think of like the surface response or that how these sourcing network or these sourcing relationships exist between all the different plants and so it's not just a singular direct pathway there's many many aspects to it and so the source sync idea has probably got other things that we don't quite understand yet but but that's basically how we think it works. Would you describe, because you've spent in your experimental work, you and your grad students actually mapping the mycorrhizal uh, map, for lack of a better, what it's like down there. These things are actually invisible to the naked eye. Am Am I right about that? For the most part, but not always. So as I said, there's many, so many species of fungi. I think that, you know, in the world, there's something like 55,000 species of fungi that we know about. So the diversity below ground is really big. And so some of them are really thick, colorful fungi that you can actually see. Like if you go into the forest and you kind of peel back the forest floor, especially in a high elevation forest or a dry forest where plants really need a lot of mycorrhizas, thick mycorrhizas to get water, get nutrients. Often you will see the mat of the hyphae. They can be white or yellow. Some of them will be saprotrophs, some will be pathogens, but a lot of them will be mycorrhizas. And you can see those. But in a lot of forests, like a really productive coastal rainforest, when you pull back that mat, you probably won't see it because it's much more replaced in nutrients. It's not that they're not there. It's just that they're finer, they're more invisible. And so in order for us to make that map, we actually couldn't just trace it with a pencil. We couldn't just see it. We had to actually map it using molecular techniques. And so the way we did that is, and I made the decision to focus this effort because it was a huge effort <laughs> to do this in Douglas fir forests that were uneven age forests that naturally regenerated as relatively pure stands, and the young ones would regenerate under the shadow of the old trees. It's like an east side forest in the U.S. We call them interior forests here. So they were dry interior forests, single species, Douglas fir, and we knew a lot about what are called microsatellite DNA sequences of Douglas fir already. The geneticists had figured this out. And then researchers at Oregon State University, Randy Molina and Annette Kretzer, had figured out the microsatellite or code for the DNA code for rhizopogon, which is one of the main fungal species connecting Douglas fir together. And so we had those microsatellite maps already. And so we could use those to go into the forest, collect all the tree and fungal material of all the members as much as we could possibly get. And we were able to determine which individual fungi were on which individual tree, the individual fungi we call genets. And we were able to map out which fungi were connecting which tree together. And what emerged out of that map, this below ground map, was basically what you would imagine the internet looks like, where there were big old trees that were the hubs of the network, And then the smaller trees were like little nodes that were linked to these big old trees. And we call those kinds of networks complex networks that where they have lots of highly connected or a few highly connected nodes, in this this case, the big old trees, and a lot of smaller nodes that are not as connected together. And so that um, that map then emerged as this complex network, which is a neural network. It's a pattern of a neural network. Okay, that brings us to your comparisons to brains. And you even speculate that there must be a mechanism of the equivalent of a synapse interconnecting with these. What can you tell us about those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, 
Trees don't have brains. They don't like our brains, right? We have a, this brain in our head. We don't, they don't have ne- central nervous systems, but they do have a neural network. Biological neural network doesn't necessarily require that you have a, a nerve. It's just a pattern. It's a pattern that we call a neural network. And so our discovery, and it was really my grad student, Kevin Byler, who made this discovery in his PhD, and I was his supervisor, along with another colleague, Dan Durrell. And we discovered that that it was a pattern of a neural network. And not only that, when we were with some of my other graduate students, we would label these trees and seedlings with carbon isotopes. And we figured out, based on the isotope ratios, and then other people did too, other people in other labs determined that the compounds that are moving through the mycorrhizal fungal hyphae that are connecting trees, the major compound is glutamate. And glutamate is one of our neurotransmitters in our own brains. And other plant physiologists have also found other neurotransmitters in plants, like serotonin is in plants, for example, or produced by plants. And so that pattern of the neural network, the discovery that the molecules moving through the network were the similar or same as our neurotransmitters. And then the final comment that you made is about the synapse. The synapse is so important in thinking and in, in, in our brain networks, where neurotransmitters pass from one neuron to another across the synapse, like serotonin and glutamate and so on. Well, mycorrhizas have synapses too. The synapse is different in that it's a synapse between the root and the fungus. So the fungus and and the root have to go into a relationship where the fungus in an ectomycorrhizal wraps itself around the roots, uh, the, the actual root tip and around the cells of the roots. And it's at that interface of the fungus membrane and the plant membrane that there is a synapse as well. And that is where carbon and nutrients are transmitted across, where this glutamate would be transmitted across in exchange for photosynthate, for example. And so there's a functioning synapse, just like there is in our brains. That doesn't mean it is a brain like ours. It's just that it's patterned after our, you know, a neural network. And it function. the functionality is has got some analogs. There are some similarities. But I don't want people to get hung up on the idea that I'm saying that trees have brains. They don't have brains. But evolution has sort of favored patterns that work, right? So neural networks are really good at regenerative capacity and at transmitting information. They're very efficient at that. And so you see these patterns being highly evolved. They they get passed on through certain lines of species in more than one kingdom. Yeah, that's what we see. You mentioned earlier that among the other characteristics of these fungi, some of them are pathogens. And you have discovered that when monoculture happens, the firs or the pines are more prone to certain pathogens. But when other species are there, they are protected. Could you briefly explain that mechanism. Yeah, well, I'll give you the example of the system I've studied the most, but this would be also true in other systems. I was very much focused on this relationship between paper birch and Douglas fir because I mentioned earlier in the conversation that I grew up in these interior rainforests. Well, when those interior rainforests burn or are logged, what regenerates are the early successional trees are paper birch, Douglas fir, and about 10 other species, tree species, and a myriad of plant species. And so what I found was that in this zeal, I'll call it zeal, to get rid of paper birch to reduce its competitive effect or get rid of its competitive effect on Douglas fir, and I started noticing that Douglas fir would become infected by this pathogen. And it's because when we took out the birch, a couple of things happened. For one, birch is relatively immune to that disease. And so it was sort of serving as a barrier for the passage or the infection to pass from one fir to another. If there's a birch in between, the pathogen doesn't spread as quickly. But the other thing that I found the most fascinating was that the birch has this high photosynthetic capacity. It's, it's a shade intolerant species. And it sends a lot of carbon into its root system as well. And that carbon that's exuded out of its root system and its mycorrhizas feeds a whole microbial community, a whole soil food web that is responsible for nutrient cycling, but is also responsible for 
or one of the things it does is that these organisms, they have, they're in a concert, a dance themselves. And some of them produce antibiotics. Some of them produce what are called chelates. They can chelate certain elements that will rob other trees of certain elements. But one of the things we found is that they produce these antibiotics that actually were inhibitory to that root disease, that fungus that was infecting the, the Douglas firs. And when we mix birch and fir together, we found that those bacteria, they're called fluorescent pseudomonas that produce these antibiotics, actually were spread onto the roots of the Douglas fir as well and, and inhibited the infection by the pathogens. And so, yeah, so when when the birch was removed from that forest, so were a lot of the, the populations of these fluorescent pseudomonas were also depressed. And so then that anti that antibiosis or that immune system was suppressed in the forest and the infection spread even further. Now, you have been very respectful and learned from the Indigenous people's ecological knowledge. I wonder if you could share some of the aspects of that in your work. Yes, I feel like these discoveries that I have made, this idea of connection in the forest or connection among all creatures, that is the epistemology of, a, of our Aboriginal people. That is how they see the world, that we are all in this world together, that we have relationships not only with each other, but our relations are also the trees and the bears and the salmon, that we're all part of this ecosystem and our relationships with each other these respectful reciprocal relationships are extremely important to maintain and, and respect and to nourish. And so when I made this discovery of connection in the forest, I was struggling with, because I didn't actually, until about 10 years ago, I hadn't worked with Aboriginal people really very much at all. And, and I was struggling with all these findings and getting all of these criticisms of my work and going, well, why can't people just see that, you know, these connections are so important? And I was so fortunate. A postdoc at the time joined me. She's a Simsian native woman. Her name is Dr. Teresa Ryan Simhayatsk. And we started talking about worldviews and her work. She works with salmon and the connection between salmon and trees. And she was describing to me how her nation viewed the forest. And she pointed out to me some writings and recordings of people, including in the U.S. There was a one man, Bruce Miller, uh, Subier, who actually wrote about the connections below ground in the forest, that, that about these fungal connections that linked the trees together and and the reciprocity among the trees and how the trees were all in this relational kinship and that humans have kinship with the trees as well. And I, I had this epiphany. This is it, right? This is what I, I've been trying to understand in my own Western view and not really fighting with the system. And now here is this whole worldview that's been here for thousands of years, that's been known for thousands of years already understood and what we are you know we had lost our way in the western science of our own roots to these connections and i i just started working with her and then opened up my whole world so now i'm working with a, a number of nations who are looking at my work and saying they see or i think that some of them see it, this is a possibility of if the western science can be looked at, or if we can look at these connections from a Western science point of view, that people will start to understand the Aboriginal point of view better, which has until recently has been basically ignored, and even ridiculed and suppressed and basically tried to scrub it out of even in Canada, our education system, we were never taught about these things, it was ignored. And so now, this is an opportunity to bring the Western science and show, actually, with our crude Western science tools, we're seeing things that, that our First Nations people have been saying all along. And so I'm trying to work more and more closely with the First Nations scientists and artists and elders to try to get this message so the rest of the world can understand it. You quote the Salish elder Subaye. He spoke of the tree people, and he really means people. He doesn't mean that in a metaphorical way. And I also appreciated that in one of your talks, you explain that in certain of the indigenous languages, elder is less of a noun and more of a verb, mm -hmm. which brings us then to the concept 
of the mother tree. And <laughs> she's the ultimate elder in the forest, in a natural forest. And one of the questions you tried to answer experimentally is, do trees recognize kinship? Would you please tell us what you have found? Yes. So when we made the map of the network in the forest and realized that the young seedlings of those trees were regenerating within those old networks. So a seed falls on the forest floor. Within a few months, we discovered they would become colonized by the fungus that was the network of the old trees. And through a series of experiments, we found out that these old trees are actually transmitting carbon and water and nitrogen to these young seedlings. And at the same time, these seedlings, if they were in this network and receiving these signals, that they survived better, they grew better. And so uh, the next question came to me or came to us, my lab group, that could these old trees also recognize which of these seedlings are their own kin? And I had learned of some work done that was ongoing in eastern Canada by a a researcher, Dr. Susan Dudley at McMaster University, who was looking at kinship in in herbaceous plants. And she was working with sea rockets at the time and has since really expanded her work. But I was wondering and was fortunate to work with her to ask the question of whether trees could recognize kin. And with her help and my graduate students, Amanda Ace, Monica Gorslack, and now Eva Snyder, you know, we all have been looking at this and found that, yeah, you know, Douglas fir trees can actually recognize kin. They can the siblings recognize each other. And the way they respond or they it affects certain traits of those plants. So some of those traits are one of the most important ones is is their rooting behavior. So if there's a, a, a kinship between two trees, the mother tree will adjust her root system, or it, you could say it if you don't like her, its root system, and the neighbor, the kin, will also adjust their, its root system, her root system, and then they they find a balance between each other that will favor the regeneration of that kin seedling. And not only that, their mycorrhizal networks are a little bit bigger, they're a little more expansive, and there's also some transmission of carbon from the old trees to the kin. And so, yes, kinship does happen in forests, and Subie talked about tree people, and this extension to kinship in what Aboriginal view, people view all the relations of the forest, not just between a species of a, an old tree and a young seedling that are kin or siblings, but kinship between people and all the plants and all the relations is really, really important and a good model for us to think about. You address the problems of climate change, the devastation of the pine beetles through huge regions in North America and probably elsewhere as well. But then you discuss the importance of a dying tree to the forest. And this has ramifications in forestry policy, particularly around the whole concept of quote-unquote salvage logging. Would you please speak to those issues? Yes, this is a really fraught issue and it's so important moving forward and I'm glad you asked me that. As I mentioned, as we know, our forests are under a great deal of stress from drought, from wildfire and beetle attacks and the industrial response to this has been to go and salvage log these trees, which means go cut the dead trees and sell them for two by fours. And the thinking is the sooner they can get in there to cut these trees down and convert them to two by fours, the less rot that seeps into them and the more valuable they'll be on the market. And what I had discovered in my work, though, is that these trees, as they're dying, there's a process of dying, right? It's just like when we die, it's not like there is a process that you get old and you you age and pass on. And so it's the same in trees. I mean, it can be sudden too, but there, even then there's a process. And part of that process that I tapped into is that these trees, as they're dying, whether suddenly or, or slowly, that there is a biochemical response to this. And one of the things that, that they do is that they transmit their carbon energy from their crowns into their roots to protect that carbon. And then some of that carbon, a good portion of it, is 
transmitted through the into the mycorrhizal network. Some of it is then turned over in the soil food web, but some of it ends up in neighboring trees. And those trees, if they're healthy and alive and not attack themselves, they can use that carbon. And so this energy transmission that can be quite conserved within trees, some of it is dispersed clearly into the general soil food web, but some of it is directly dispersed to other trees. And this process, it's not just carbon, there's also information, right? We've also seen defense information go through even things like monoterpenes, which are produced by plants to resist disease or infections. Those monoterpene responses are also transmitted and even upregulated in the genetics of, of receiving trees. And so there's this information that's passed from the old to the young is really important in setting themselves up, giving them energy, but also the right information and the right upregulation of their own DNA, RNA, and defense arsenal to withstand and be better protected going forward because they have their own stresses and they need all of that information to develop a healthy population and community to, to survive into the next generations. And so this idea of salvage logging trees immediately for profit is actually short-circuiting some of that process that will provide for healthy forests in the future. So it's it's a complex problem, right? Because one of the reasons they cut down trees too is ostentatiously in the name of reducing fire risk. But there can be a balance there, right? Like of delaying the salvage logging, letting the trees do their thing, leaving some of them for the habitat that they also provide for birds and animals, because that is super important too. Yes, you can take some, but not everything. It doesn't have to be like a complete wash. I'm glad you brought up the animals because that's where I wanted to go. So we're following Subiye's lead and honoring the tree people and, dare I say, the fungus people. But yes, there's, there's, yes. there's also the animal people yes. and their role in the forest. Would you speak to that? And particularly wolves and bears who are in the States anyway, they're under threat with recent events around the Endangered Species Act. Talk about the importance of their role in the forest. Yeah, well, I'll use an example of some of the research I'm doing with Dr. Teresa Ryan up in the mid-coast in the Haltzik territory, the Haltzik nation. And I'll get around to talking about this, but I'm going to tell this story. As you know, salmon are migratory species, and they're also food, food for wolves and bears, eagles, people. The salmon populations, of course, have been decimated since colonization, and that affects the forest, and this is how. So the salmon, we know that they carry out most of their life cycle in the ocean, but then they return to their natal streams to spawn. And in the process of returning to their natal streams, they die back in their streams uh, along the banks. And the wolves and the bears, eagles, will carry those carcasses up into the forest. And a bear, for example, can carry about 150 fish into the forest to eat in a single day. And they have their patterns. They like to go to certain trees where they feel safe. They can see their predators Often they're big old mother trees and they have their cubs with them and they eat the salmon. Some of that salmon is left behind because they, they like the high energy organs like the brains and the guts and so on. And they leave the fillets, which is what we love to eat. But a lot of that is left behind and it decays. And as it decays, that those nutrients seep into the forest floor and the mycorrhizal networks of those old trees pick up that salmon nutrient and transmit it into their trunks and store it in their annual growth rings. And so there's actually the salmon nutrients people have been able to trace by following heavy isotopes of nitrogen, which accumulate in the ocean naturally in salmon. So we can use it as a natural tracer. And we found that a lot of the nutrition of these trees is dependent on the bears and the wolves carrying the fish into the forest. Now that these populations are endangered, salmon included, and the bears and the wolves, that process, that cycle is disrupted. And so ultimately, what we're worried about is that when that cycle is disrupted, that the forest will start to decline along the coast, along with all these other endangered species that they're dependent on. And not just the bears and the wolves and the eagles and the salmon, which are all interlinked together, but the people too. And the Haltzik people, along with the Haida and the Simsian and the Tlingit, the coastal nations, the Salish, 
they had a very special relationship with salmon, dependent on salmon, as with the cedars and the bears. But the salmon in particular provided a lot of food and gave them great wealth along the coastal regions. And they managed that salmon very, very carefully through careful observation. And they also nurtured those populations. And one of the ways that they fished for salmon along the north coast anyway was they built these amazing stone traps, these ancient stone traps. And the way that worked is that when the tide came in, the spawning salmon would be brought in with the tide. And when when the tide went out, the salmon would get trapped behind the stone traps. And then the people would come along and basically take the fish that they needed. But they threw back the big mothers that were going to spawn these big eggs to produce more big salmon. And over thousands and thousands of years of doing this, they actually cultivated high salmon populations. At least that's what we think. And then, of course, when colonization happened, those fish traps were dismantled because the colonizing governments took over the fisheries, they took over the resources, and that cycle was broken. And now, with modern fishery practices, we all know the salmon populations have been decimated. Instead of growing these wealthy populations, we've actually reduced them to a few percent of what they were. It's not just through overfishing, but also dams and habitat loss. But the cycle has been broken, and the kinship among all those relations, the people, the salmon, the bears, the trees, they're all connected. We are all connected. And when we we lose respect for our relations and, and disconnect them, then things start to fall apart. And so we need to rebuild those relationships. And it starts with respecting those, our relations, our trees, our tree people, our salmon people, our bear people, our wolf people as ourselves. I very much regret, Professor Suzanne Simard, that we have run out of time. It has been such an honor to interview you today on Forthright Radio, and thank you for your work and for writing your book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. You have just heard a conversation with University of British Columbia Professor of Forest Ecology, Dr. Suzanne Simard. Her book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, has just been published by Knopf. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. We end today's Forthright Radio with a recent piece commissioned by the Intermountain Opera Company, composed by Eric Funk, Requiem for a Forest, performed by Roots in the Sky. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.